redheaded. Thank you, Marty Buck. Uh, if you'd go to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to finish the first chapter today, and then next week we'll start the seven churches. We'll probably spend several weeks there. So next week, just read ahead in chapter 2 in the book of Ephesus. Remember, the book of Revelation is God's last word to planet Earth. He has not spoken in written form for over 1,900 years. It's been said the last words are lasting words, so this is pretty important. As I mentioned last week, Revelation is largely prophetic, most of the book is about the future. As we also mentioned last week, it's often neglected, mostly misunderstood. But chapter 1, verse 3, God promises a blessing on people who do three things. One, read it. Two, hear it. And three, what's the third one? Be blessed. Heed it, which means obey. You don't get brownie points. You don't get blessed for knowing. You get blessed for doing, right? That's what you've all told your children or grandchildren. Now that I've told you, do what I tell you to do, right? So twice in the first three verses, chapter 1 and 3 verses, Jesus says that these things that are written are going to occur shortly. They're going to occur soon. So we need to be paying attention at that point. So the first three verses are prologue. We're going to spend some time today in, in verses 4 through 20. And here's the key idea. The key idea is that Jesus is both present and actively working in his church, how often? Every day. Every day, every day, every day. And since you are part of his church family, he is present and active and working in your life, right? Say amen. amen. Come on, you know he is. You'll figure it out here really soon. Chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the spirits, seven spirits who are before his throne. So the recipients of this letter are who? The seven churches that are listed, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there's seven churches. Now the number seven occurs 54 times in this book. So the number seven is a really important number in the book of Revelation. The number seven in the Bible always indicates fulfillment, completion, perfection. So it's always a, a number of ending. It's always a number of completion. And it's interesting that in this verse 4, it says a church, it says the churches. It's a definite article, the churches, instead of that, which means that the message is to not just the seven local churches, but the church universal. You know what that means? This message was not just for those seven churches. This message is for us. Today, God has some things to say to us today, and we need to pay attention. Now, following the listing of the churches, we hear, come to the, one of the first benedictions in this book, and it says, grace and peace. Grace is God's attitude toward us who believe. And a grace is what? Those of you who know what grace is, what is it? Unmerited favor, which means you don't deserve it. Right? You look in the mirror and you say, I do not deserve the grace that I get. That's grace. If you deserved it, it would be earning, right? You get paid for the work you do. You don't get paid by God for the work you do because the work we do is not worth getting paid for. But he gives us grace. It's unmerited favor. And he says, peace. Peace represents the status of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you that understand a little Hebrew, how do you say peace in Hebrew? Shalom. Shalom means the absence of conflict, right? No more war, but it also indicates a sense of wholeness, a sense of wellness, a sense of integrity. So it's not just, we're not currently not fighting, but we might fight this afternoon, right? That's not shalom. Shalom is we're not, not only not currently fighting, there's a sense of harmony and well-being in our relationship. So it's a much more global sense of well-being at that point in time. So this benediction comes from somebody. Who is telling the church grace and peace? For those of you who have your Bibles open, you look at the next sentence. If you don't have your Bible open, open it up. From what? It says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Whose is and was and is to come? Yeah, he's talking about God. This is God the Father, God the Father, the eternal God who dwells outside time, outside space, the great I am that I am at that point in time. 
And who's the second one? God the Father says grace and peace. The second one is the Holy Spirit from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now we know there's only one Holy Spirit, but the ministry of the Holy Spirit is sevenfold. For those of you that are cross-referencing Isaiah 11 verse 2, Isaiah 11 2 says, And the one spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Two, the spirit of wisdom. Three, the spirit of understanding. Four, the spirit of counsel. Five, the spirit of strength. Six, the spirit of knowledge. And seven, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So there's a sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now we said the word seven means what? Completeness. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is complete, right? Once again, the number seven. And then the last part of that benediction is found in verse five. Grace and peace from God the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. And there's a threefold description of Jesus Christ. What do we know about Jesus Christ based on verse 5? He's the faithful witness, right? Number two, he's the firstborn from the dead. Number three, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, right? Say yes. yes. I just want to make sure you're with me. The faithful witness. Jesus fulfilled the role of the prophet while on earth. And for those of you who are looking for a cross-check on this, John 18, 37, Jesus, remember at his trial, is being interrogated by Pilate. Pilate thinks he's interrogating Jesus. Jesus is actually doing it. And Jesus tells Pilate the reason he came into the world was to what? Bear witness to the truth. Was Jesus a faithful witness of the truth? Yes. Are we called to be faithful witnesses of the truth? Yes, for those of you that were in the service this morning, you will understand what Andrew was trying to say there. So he's a faithful witness. Number two, he's the firstborn from the dead, which means who was the first to receive a resurrection body that will never decay? Jesus was the first one. Is he the last one to ever get one? Nope. No, you will have a resurrection body. Most of you look like you need one. Right? <laughs> Now that includes me. I'm number one on that list. I was at uh, BJ's restaurant the other day catching a table for a friend uh, who was having lunch with Marin and I, and the lady in, up front said, we don't have a Brad here, but there's an elderly gentleman seated over there. Man, that's cold. That just... <laughs> Do I look like an elderly gentleman? <laughs> I said, I'm not elderly and I'm no gentleman either, so you're wrong on both guys. You know, sometimes the Lord knows how to just put you in your place. I mean, you know, you think you're something and then some 19-year-old says you're elderly. Pitiful, just pitiful. Of course, you know, Marin, Marin is my, my truth teller. and She says, well, what were you thinking about people that were 16 when you were 19? And I said, they're all walking miracles. They should be dead by 60. I mean, you know, I mean, when you're 19, you know, you think about it. So it was just, it's amazing at that point. So we're all, we all are going to get a resurrection body and we all desperately need a resurrection body, right? So the Lord has got us taken care of there as well because he conquered death, will conquer death too. John 14, 19 says, because I live, you will live. It's a great promise. And there, he's, uh, Jesus is also faithful witness, first begotten of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now that's future. Jesus is coming, and his second coming, he will rule and reign over everything and everyone forever. Jesus is also, the last phrase of verse 5, who loved us and released us from our sins, or washed us from our sins. So he set us free from the law of sin and death by his blood. Go on to verse 6. Jesus also has done a couple other things for us. He's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So this is kind of a benediction and a doxology all in one, which is a form of praise, by the way. So believers form a priesthood and a kingdom. Now, when there is a kingdom, what does a kingdom require? The king. And who is the king? You know the most important thing to remember about who the king is? It ain't you. <laughs> Seriously. See, I'm all for a kingdom as long as I get to be the king. Right? We all want to be the king. It's real clear here that we're not. And he is. And this book is all about Jesus Christ the king. And that's what we're going to be studying in great detail. Verse 7 tells us what we can expect in the future. Behold, he, Jesus, is going to do what? 
Coming with the clouds. You can underline that because that is one of the core central thesis of the entire book. He is coming again. Yes? We know that. Our whole future is predicated on the fact that he's coming again and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so, amen. Now, when he says behold, when the, John says behold, that's a very fancy English word that says pay attention, right? See, look. You see that, right? So it, it's a form of, of in, imperative that says pay attention, be on the alert. And um, this is probably not terribly biblical, but when he says, behold, he's coming with the clouds, I think of Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, I'll be back, right? <laughs> he's coming back. That's imperative to remember. When you look at the mess on the planet and you look at the news and you want to open your veins with a rusty scalpel, you have to remember that he is coming back. And when he comes back, what's he going to do? He's going to take care of business, which means justice will be served order will be restored and his place will be as king so he says pay attention i'm coming back and here's the operational application for you am i ready to receive my king if he was coming back this afternoon would i have unfinished business that i have to take care of before i'm ready to receive him paula you were going to say something? Uh, no, I have a question. Okay, talk to me. Um, it says, all will see him and, and also who pierced him. Mm -hmm. So is that when we get our bodies is when we, we all go up? Because the people that pierced him are all... Yeah, the people that pierced him are all dead. And it's a good point. Zechariah 12.10 tells us that when Jesus comes the second time, he's going to give the nation of Israel a spirit of grace and repentance. And they will mourn the current people that are alive at that point in time over the, the fact that their ancestors, their family, their nation, Israel, crucified him. So that spirit of repentance is coming. By the way, we look at this and we go, well, how can everybody see Jesus when he comes back? I mean, he can't show up on all places on the planet at the same time. Really? Is he God? See, he's not local. We go... Well, if he's going to come, he's got to come in Bakersfield. How can he show up in, you know, Arkansas at the same time? He's not a local God, right? He's not limited to space and time. When he comes back, everybody will see him. Do I know how? No, I don't. But I promise you, if he said, let there be light and there was light, he can make your eye see him. Trust me, not a problem. Every eye is going to see him. Here's the key point. Some people are going to be thrilled to see him, and some people are going to throw up when he comes back, right? The people that are thrilled to see him are people that know him as king now. They've received Jesus as Savior. They've acknowledged his lordship. They're in humble service to him. They're not in rebellion. Who are the people that are going to have a real problem? Well, it says that the tribes of the world are going to do what? It says they're going to mourn. Now, this is just a hint. That's not a party. That is a serious problem. These people are going to be seriously in trouble, and they know they're seriously in trouble. If you look at Revelation 6, if you just want a little cross-check here, Revelation 6, 15 to 16, it says, The kings of the earth and the presidents and the prime ministers and the royals and all the popular, powerful people in Revelation 6, verses 15 to 16, they're going to hide themselves in caves. And they're going to say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Right? They're in trouble at that point, and they know they're in trouble because Jesus doesn't come back as a suffering servant. He comes back as a king. Right? He comes back as the king. He is sovereign. Do tribes of the earth mean those who are associated with the earth and not those Yes. Anytime it says of the earth, it literally means earth dwellers. Right? It's people who the earth is their home. Now, do you live on planet earth? Yes. Is the earth your home? Nope. No. It's your temporary residence. Like Pastor Andrew said this morning, you are migrant workers in God's field on the planet. Migrants are not temporary. I mean permanent. They're temporary. You're here for a few years to accomplish God's purpose. Where is your citizenship? Heaven. Right? So we need to remember that there are people, though, 
this is their earth. This is their home. It's all they know. And they are in rebellion against God at that point in time. And when he comes back, they're going to say, hide me because I am not ready to face my judge. And they're not going to have any choice because he's coming back and he's going to execute justice. Verse 8. Jesus identifies himself two or three ways. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, the Alpha and the Omega are what? Some of you know a little bit about Greek. What's Alpha and Omega? First letter of the Greek alphabet, last letter of the alphabet. So Jesus is saying, I am the beginning of all things, I'm in between all things, and I'm the end of all things. The Alpha and the Omega encompasses not just the first and the last letter, but the whole alphabet. Everything in between. So he identifies himself as sovereign. He also says he's almighty. Almighty means, shows up nine times in Revelation. Almighty means what? Almighty. Almighty, right? Almighty, right? No one stronger. You know, sometimes it's pretty obvious. You look and go, oh, there must be some esoteric answer. You know, a lot of times it's just real clear, right? By the way, when you interpret Revelation, I've got a little couple of clues for you. Number one, it is written in English, which, which is real helpful, right? It's real helpful because most of you speak English. The plain sense of Scripture is what it means the vast majority of the time. You don't have to bring some vast interpretive symbolic blah, blah, blah. What it says is what it means because God does not have a problem communicating, does he? Does God say what he means? Does God mean what he says? You got 99% of it right there, right? He wrote the book to be understood. He also says, I am the one who is and who was and is to come. That's out of order. You ever notice that? How come he doesn't say <clears throat> the one who was past is present and is to come future? How come he doesn't go from past, present, and future? Why does he say, I am the one who is first? Pardon? He's alive. He's alive, correct. It's eternally present. God told Moses at the mountain what? I am that I am. I am eternally present. God does not dwell outside, inside time. He dwells outside time. Verse 9. <clears throat> now John's kind of done the prologue and he's kind of done the salutation. Now he's going to get into himself and why the book got written and to who. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John says, I'm the eyewitness. I'm the one who saw this vision and I'm the writer of the vision as well. <clears throat> when you look and he says, I, John, he's almost amazed that God would entrust him with this revelation. He's like, even me, God entrusted this with me, that I would be commissioned to do this. Now, John is the fourth um, writer of the fourth gospel. He's the disciple that Jesus loved. In the flesh, he was Jesus' first cousin. Okay, so he was related, Right? He doesn't even see himself as worthy of this privilege at this point in time. He describes himself. How does he describe himself in verse 9? He says what? Your brother and companion or fellow partaker in what? Suffering. Suffering. It's intriguing here. I didn't use the word fascinating. I used the word intriguing, right? I'm, John, I got you. I'm, I'm still on your list, buddy. It's interesting. It's uh, you're remarkable that John assumes that suffering is normal. It's no big deal. It happens all the time. I'm a fellow partaker in the suffering that you are experiencing. The people that are getting this letter, the seven churches, they're under the gun. They're, incur they're incurring suffering as well. John himself is incurring suffering as well. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, some who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. Is that what it says? It says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you know something? Our flesh has a solution for that. Just don't live godly. And you can avoid the persecution, right? No problem. Yeah, for a few years. But when you leave here, then the real problem starts. If you're going to undergo suffering, better undergo suffering here temporarily, right? So you undergo bliss forever as opposed to have a few years here, which ain't a lot great anyway. 
and then undergo suffering forever, I think I'd take heaven, you know? So, John expects trouble before triumph. John expects the cross before the crown. John expects hassles before heaven. Because opposition to the gospel is normal. It is normal. Did you hear that? It is normal. When you get rejected down here on the planet, don't go, why me? Right? Why not you? Why are you so special? Right? No suffering? Amy Carmichael, who spent 56 years in India without a, uh, what do you call it, a furlough, wrote a little passage called, No Scars? Why no scars? If you have no scar tissue, wow, have you been in the battle? Or on, you know, back in the mess hall complaining. One of the things that's interesting, people that are in the battle for the gospel, I don't see them whining. You know who whines? People that are not in the front lines, right? So if you're not in the front lines, that's the biggest problem, okay? All right. Enough conviction for a few minutes. We'll get back to conviction in a minute. Where's John? John's on the island called Patmos. Now, Patmos is a barren, rocky chunk of, of islands, only about 10 miles long and about 6 miles wide. It's actually shaped like a crescent, right? And the inside of the crescent is the harbor, and it faces towards Turkey. It's located in the Aegean Sea, uh, just beyond the island of Samos. It's about 40 miles offshore. Uh, next to Miletus. Miletus, was, of course, was the port city of Ephesus. There's a small group, about 50 islands there. Those of you that are impressed with islands, don't get too impressed. Greece, the nation of Greece, has 6,000 islands. Six, most of them are just rocky, you know, outcroppings. But it's a lot of islands there. So this is a group of about 50. This was a penal colony. It's where you put prisoners. Roman Empire liked colonies like this. They could use them for forced labor. It's kind of the Alcatraz for the Roman Empire. Except it's not in the San Francisco Bay, a mile and a half offshore. Somebody's going to swim. Your daughter's going to swim. Alcatraz, okay. All right, coming up, Greg. Uh, at any rate, pray for her. It's a lot of currents there. But this was 40 miles. This would be a serious swim, even if there's not a lot of waves. 40 miles in the Aegean is a tough swim. So he would, John was banished there by Domitian for preaching the gospel, the emperor Domitian. Now, John was probably in his late 80s at this point in time. And in today's world, we would call what he was doing, he was part of a chain gang. So he was doing forced labor in the mines and in the quarries at that point in time. So he had a sentence of hard labor in his 80s. You think you work hard? That would be tough, breaking rocks in your 80s, late 80s. It was an island for criminals, but John's only crime was loving Jesus. John MacArthur has said that we gain the greatest knowledge of God through the deepest suffering. We gain the greatest knowledge of God through the deepest suffering. Suffering is a door by which God can reveal more of himself to you. You know, I wrote that, and I think there's truth in it, but I don't even like it. I want a greater knowledge of God. But sometimes the way God reveals himself to me more is through pain. Right? Would you say that's true? Most of the lessons that we remember in life are lessons that came through suffering. There's a lot of lessons I have learned that I have forgotten. But most of the ones I have scar tissue on because I got pain, experienced pain, I remember those. I remember those. You probably do too. So John was shut off from the world by a human king, but the eternal king of kings revealed the spiritual world to him that was far more real than the world he had left. Now John was in pretty good company. Moses received the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Where was he when God told him that? In the wilderness with two million whiners. Right? That's when he received the Pentateuch, right? And he was responsible to lead them. David wrote a good chunk of the Psalms when he was doing what? Running for his life from King Saul. Isaiah died as a martyr. How did Isaiah get martyred? He was sawn in half. They stuck him inside an empty log and sawed the log in half. Now that's not a fun way to go. All right? Jeremiah preached, prophesied for four decades and he got rejected for all four decades. He was never accepted, ever, ever, by his own people. 
Ezekiel's entire ministry took place when he was exiled in a foreign land. Never saw home again. Okay? It's normal. This is normal. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. In the Spirit simply means he was filled, he was controlled by the Holy Spirit, and he was supernaturally transported into a spiritual realm beyond the limits of space and time. He was given a vision that human senses could not perceive without God's divine empowerment. Okay? You cannot choose to be in the Spirit by taking hallucinic drugs. Okay? It's not going to work. This was something that God did for John, or through John, because he wanted us to have this vision. Peter also experienced the supernatural vision. Remember when Peter got the vision of the clean and unclean animals? He was taking a nap. Taking a nap is no guarantee you're going to have that, by the way, but Acts 10 and 11. Paul was transported where? Into the third heaven, right? So it's not unknown, but it's highly unusual. This was a direct intervention of God into John's life to reveal these visions to him, and he was transported on the Lord's day, or the day of the Lord. There's a lot of debate here. If In fact, it, it does say the Lord's day. That's the first day of the week. That's Sunday, right? If it says on the day of the Lord, and there are, I've read a lot of commentaries that argue this at that point in time, the day of the Lord is a future day of judgment when he deals with sinful humanity at that point in time. But at any rate, he hears the voice of a trumpet, a loud voice like a trumpet. Um, it's a piercing, penetrating sound that can't be ignored. I, I guess the best way I could say of it is, how many of you have been in the car and heard a train whistle? Can you hear the train whistle even with your windows rolled up? If you're close enough, you can. Okay. Anytime you hear a loud sound or a loud voice in the book of Revelation, and you're going to hear that theme several times. I heard a loud voice. I heard a loud sound. It's a sign that something serious and solemn is coming up. Right? It's an announcement there. There's going to be a very significant message that follows. How many of you were real small when you were a little child knew that your mom and dad had a you're in big trouble voice? <laughs> That's when they used all three of your names. Right? You knew something solemn was going to come, right? My mother never talked a lot. She just grabbed a stick. And uh, we got disciplined. So anyway. So it's an attention-getting sound. You can't ignore this sound. And this voice tells John, verse 11, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Rob's got a map on the screen that he's going to show you these seven churches. And this was John's um, job description. It's very highly likely that John received his vision in installments over a period of days or even weeks, probably not all at once. He said, write in a book what you see. This is a scroll, and it's, uh, it's not animal vellum, it's parchment. It's papyrus at that point in time. So those seven churches <coughs> uh, uh, show up in a very specific order, right? And it's interesting that every time you see these seven churches, they all show up in the same order. There are seven prominent cities in western Turkey, that's Asia Minor, and each one had a prominent church. And each one of these cities were the postal districts for the region. Now back in the day when they actually delivered physical mail, right? Physical mail? You guys going to get physical mail anymore? Yeah, you get physical junk mail. The really good stuff doesn't come by physical. But anyway, physical mail. These were the postal districts. Oh, all right, all right, not a problem. So these cities were prominent cities in the region. They were, they were arenas of information, commerce, trade, immigration. So they were good, logical places to plant churches. And if you were going to deliver <coughs> this scroll called Revelation to the seven churches, you would start at Ephesus and you would work your way up to Laodicea. So there's a reason why they keep showing up. I wanted, this, I wanted Rob to show you the map so you could see that there's logic behind this list. This list shows up for a very specific reason because it's the logical sequence that you would do the message delivery system just based on geography at that point in time. So the order's not an accident. It becomes clear that a messenger's going to follow a very logical route starting with Ephesus and then winding up to 
uh, to Laodicea. Now, he's, th 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 this voice, which you're going to find out is the voice of Jesus Christ, commands John to write in a book what he sees. Only one time is he commanded not to write, in chapter 10, verse 4. Twelve times in this book, John is commanded to write what he sees, which could lead you to tentatively conclude that maybe he had 12 separate visions for the book of Revelation because he was commanded to write 12 times. Only in 10.4 was he commanded not to write. So he had a vision that he couldn't document for us, just so you know. Now, beginning in verse 12, we're going to see John's vision of the glorified Christ that he has given and this vision is not of the future, it's of the present. It's a vision of Jesus Christ today who is active in his church right now. And when you read this description of Jesus Christ, it is radically different than baby Jesus in a manger. Yeah. It's radically different than Jesus the suffering servant. This is Jesus Christ the King. It's important that you understand, and I, you need to make an interpretive note here, when John describes what Jesus looks like, he also reveals what Jesus is doing. So what Jesus physically looks like is an indicator of what Jesus is doing activity-wise. All right? Our key idea is that Jesus is active and working in his church today. Verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, Verse 20, you don't have to figure out what seven golden lampstands are. Verse 20 tells you what seven golden lampstands are. Yeah, we're, you're, you're probably going to see more of this stuff as time goes on. Uh, Rob and I have had a conversation that we're, we're not going to try and, and give you physical representation because we can't do that. But on the other hand, I want you to get an idea. Portable lampstands. What's the function of a lampstand? To do what? To give light. They usually place lampstands around a room. Now, what's the primary function of the church? To give light. So we know verse 20 tells us the lampstands represent churches. You don't have to figure that one out. It tells you that. So each local church is called to give light where? Wherever it's planted, right? You heard that this morning at the 8 o'clock service. Your neighborhood is where you're supposed to be giving light. That's why God has you where he is at that point in time. Matthew 5.14 says, you are the light of the world. Go down two verses. Matthew 5.16 says, let your light shine. Where? Before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father that's in heaven. What are these lampstands made out of? Gold. Gold. Gold is the precious metal. It's prized for its beauty and its usefulness. The church of God's not made out of physical gold, but it's made out of precious souls that Jesus Christ died for. How many are there? What's the number? Seven. Have you heard this number before? It's the number of completeness. It's the number of uh, fulfillment. Even in the wilderness, the temple, the tabernacle, contained a seven-branch lampstand. Now, this passage doesn't seem to indicate one lampstand with seven candles. We call that a menorah, right? This would indicate seven separate lampstands that were placed in a circle. And where is Jesus? In the middle of the lampstands, like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his breast. So here's the principle. Jesus is in the middle of his church every day. Sometimes you look at the church and you go, whoa, man, these people are just nuts. You know something? Nothing surprises Jesus because he's on site. As a good parent with young children, where would you find a parent? With their children, right? On site. Jesus is on site with his church. He left the church physically, but he never left the church spiritually. He promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, Son of Man, that's his messianic title. Here's a real interesting indicator. It says he, this Jesus is wearing a robe that reaches to where? To his feet. What can you conclude about somebody who wears a robe that reaches to their feet? They're not going to do a lot of physical activity. You tried to run in a robe that reaches your feet? Some of you are not really coordinated when you're wearing pants.
pants, let alone you know a robe reaching to your feet at that point in time. So you know who you know who wore robes that long? Kings, judges, prophets, and priests. They didn't have to do a lot of physical activity when they wore the robe to their feet, right? And also another clue here. He wore a robe that was girded around with a golden sash. They say girdle. That is not a girdle to hold nylons, folks. That's a sash that goes around your waist. That's a clue that this is the attire of a high priest. High priests wore robes to the ankles with a sash around the middle at that point. What's the primary job of a priest? To intercede between God and man. To bring God and man together. So our second principle is Jesus, our great high priests, priest, intercedes for his church. How often? You can probably put intercedes for me every day. Now, how many of you need intercession every day? We all do. We all need intercession every day. So Jesus, our great high priest, intercedes for us. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus, our great high priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was tempted like we are. So Jesus starts, or Paul, John starts with Jesus' location in the middle of his church. He describes Jesus' clothing, what he wears, and now he's going to talk about what Jesus looks like, his person. Verse 14. And his head and his hair were, what color? White, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His head and his hair were white, like white wool. Now, in, the, in Scripture, white symbolizes what? Always. Purity. Anytime you see white in Scripture, it's a consistent symbol. You don't have to figure out what white means here. White always means purity. <clears throat> oh, Fred, I just Hang on to that just a second. I'm running out of time. This description, by the way, is not white like white paper. It's not white like a white wall. It's not white like a white blouse. This is white like blazing, glowing, glorious, brilliant, blinding white light. When he says white, it's effulgent. It's giving off light. And it's brilliant white light that can blind you. White in the Bible represents purity. And, of course, Jesus is the pure one. And it says his eyes are like what? Flames of fire, almost like two laser beams. Here's the principle. Jesus sees and knows <clears throat> everything about his church every day. You could translate that. Jesus sees and knows everything about me every day. Right? The eyes like fire represent Jesus searching, his penetrating gaze into the very heart of his people. We know there are no secrets with God, correct? His vision's accurate. Some, some people get concerned about the TSA scanners at the airport or the MRI scanners at the radiologist. They only see a little bit. The eyes of the Lord see what? Everything. Everything. It's intriguing to me, it's remarkable, John, that David, in Psalm 139, 23, asks God to search his heart. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. When's the last time you prayed that prayer and really meant it? I mean, do you really want to know what's in your heart? Ethel, you're honest, but that's really true. Only God knows what's in our heart. And when he turns the spotlight on like he does here, then we have opportunity to correct what needs correcting because he reveals it at that point. It, it, the implication is Jesus searches his heart, our hearts, and he knows what we need. He knows exactly what we need. Verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. <clears throat> Here's the principle for verse 15. Jesus purifies and refines his church every day. His feet were like burnished bronze. In Scripture, bronze and brass are the same thing. They're an, uh, they're an alloy of copper and tin. And when you look at the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the only use brass had was for sin offerings. Anytime you see brass or bronze in the Old Testament, it was never ever used for anything other than dealing with sin. 
you put the sin offering on the bronze altar or the brass altar at that point in time. So when you see the word bronze in Revelation, consistent with the biblical theme of that symbol, it always has to do with judgment of sin. See, one of the things that I, I love about the book of Revelation, all the symbols you see in this book, they're already used throughout Scripture. They're, they're, there's not a new symbol. There's not a new meaning. If bronze always has indicated judgment of sin throughout the Bible, it's going to mean the same thing in the book of Revelation. Same God wrote the same book, right? And it said the bronze was what color? It was burnished, right? How do you get bronze burnished? You heat it up, right? It says glowing in a furnace. It's almost red hot, pure glowing hot metal. You know, you purify metal by heating it up to the point where everything's not. The metal itself gets floated to the surface and you can skim it off at that point. Jesus loves his people too much to let them remain impure, so he's going to purify his people. He's going to refine his people. You know how he refines us? He puts us in the fire, right? Because he wants to separate the garbage from us. And the best way to do that is to heat up our life. And I can hear some of you go, oh, man, can't there be an easier way? I mean, isn't there a real easy way? If there was an easier way, God would do the easier way. But he wants us pure because he loves us. Sometimes when you have cancer, what do you have to do? You have to go to somebody who's really good with a knife. Right? They, we call it surgery. God does surgery on us. Yes? Now the problem is, sometimes us as patients, we don't want surgery. We'd rather die with the cancer. Right? Right? Has God ever tied you down so we could do surgery in your life? Uh-huh. He has. And he will, because he wants you eternally with him. It says his voice is like the sound of many waters. It's almost like Niagara Falls or surf on the shoreline. Here's the principle. Jesus speaks to his church. How often? Every day. Jesus speaks to you. Every day. I remember a number of years ago, Marin and I were at the Niagara Falls on the Canadian side, and the sound is so huge, you feel it. I mean, it almost rumbles. It is just amazing. Uh, the composer Gustav Mahler, who was known to write symphonies that blow your doors off, the guy had brass sections that were out of sight. And uh, he sat next to uh, Niagara Falls in the 1890s, and if he said, at last, fortissimo. <laughs> That's a sound. If you've not been there sometime, do it at that point in time. So one of the thoughts that came to you, if Jesus speaks to you and I every day, have you ever noticed that in Scripture, no one is ever recorded as interrupting God when God is speaking? <laughs> have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been interrupted? Doesn't it just fry your potatoes? I mean, you just want to slap them, you know? And Brad here is guilty of that. Seriously. My big mouth, I can interrupt, right? Because I got something to say, and of course, everybody should hear it. Yeah, right. But it's intriguing that when God speaks in Scripture, mountains shake, earthquakes break out, you know? Nature trembles. His voice is so overwhelming that people fell on their faces when they hear him. So Jesus speaks to his church, but he speaks with authority. Jesus never makes suggestions. Jesus never gives advice. Jesus only makes statements and gives commands, right? Say yes. yes. I know, I know. You want God to give you advice and let you decide whether you're going to take it or not. God never gives advice. He says, this is what you must do. The big question is not, does he speak? The big question is, are we listening? Verse 16, and his right hand were seven gold, seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Oh, that's good, okay. Here's the principle. Jesus controls and protects his church every day. It says the stars are where? Where is the stars? In his right hand. What do you know about the right hand in the Bible? When it says the right hand of God in the Bible, what are they talking about? Power, control, 
honor, authority. When Jesus holds you in his right hand, who's in charge? He's in charge. He's in control. So he's in control of his church. Now, verse 20 tells us that these stars represent the leaders of the church. Sometimes stars in Scripture mean angels, but nowhere in the Bible is ever taught that angels lead churches. So these stars are most likely human leaders of these seven churches. Jesus controls his church and the leadership of those church. Um, you've heard the old song, he's got the whole world. In his what? Is it plural or singular? You know, it doesn't take two hands for God to hold the whole thing. You ever thought about that? He can do it with one hand. Kind of interesting, you know? You and I, if we want to hang on to something, we hold it with both hands. God can do it with one hand. Kind of neat, right? Jesus said, My Father is greater than everyone, and no one is able to take someone out of my Father's hand. So when you're in the hand of God... As they say in Allstate, you're in good hands, right? So the, the hand of God is a place of safety because only he's in control of everything. And it says out of his mouth comes what? A dull sword, right? A dull single-sided sword? It says a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus he cut both ways at this point. The Greek word for sword here is rumphia. And this is a very long, heavy sword. Mike Scott knows all about this. Mike's an expert on Roman tradition. Uh, it's not the Machaira, which was the short 18-inch sword. This was the long sword that you stabbed people with. And a sword in, that used by Rome as it was a principal offensive weapon was not designed to wound you. It was designed to kill you at that point in time. So if Jesus wields a sword... He's going to protect his church, right? Say yes. Yep. Now here's what's frightening. Jesus will use his sword to protect and defend his church from all enemies, including enemies on the inside of his church. Right? If someone's going to damage some member of your family, even if it's another member of your family, you're going to take action, right? Say yes, you're a good parent. Jesus is going to do the same thing. He's not going to allow anyone to attack and harm his church. It says his face was like the sun shining in its strength. It's like looking at the sun will blind you. You can't look at it directly. The same light that blinded Paul on the road to Damascus, the Shekinah glory of God in the wilderness. You can't look at the sun. You couldn't look directly at him. And verse 17 says, and when I saw him, I did what? I fell down at his feet like a dead man, and he laid his hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last. By the way, that's the only response you will ever see in the Bible to a direct revelation of God himself. Everybody falls down, right? Manoah, Samson's daddy, is terrified that God's going to strike him dead after their conversation. Job, God speaks to Job, and Job does what? He repents in dust and ashes, right? Isaiah sees God in, in Isaiah 6, and he says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, right? Daniel gets a vision of heaven, and it says he's sick and weak for weeks. He just got no gas, right? He just, he's out of energy. Zacharias disbelieved that God was going to send him John, and he struck dumb, right? Now, God, Jesus gives John much grace. He lays his hand on him. He says, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. We've already talked about I'm the living one. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, I want you to think about this word keys. Jesus said, I have the keys of death and of Hades. If you have keys, what do you have? You have control. What else? You have what? You have access, right? A key always gives you authority and access. So Jesus has the keys of death and of Hades. So who conquered death? Jesus. Hades is where? It's the place of the dead, right? Jesus has control over both of those areas because of the cross. Verse 19 says, Write the things that I'm telling you, which you see, the things which are, and the things which shall be after these things. So we already talked about this last week. This is the outline of the book of Revelation. Verse 19, write it down. Verse 19 is the outline of the book. The things which you have seen are chapter 1. 
The things which are present, we're going to do for the next several weeks. That's the letters to the seven churches. That's chapter 2 and 3. And the things which shall take place after these things, that's chapter 4 to 22. All right? Now, in verse 20, he tells you directly. You say, well, who are the stars? Right? He says he's got the stars in his hands. Who's the stars? It tells you right there, right? Who are the lampstands? He tells you who the lampstands are. You don't have to figure out. I wonder what he's talking about lampstands. It's talking about the church, and it's talking about the leaders of the church. So it's extraordinarily clear at that point. Okay, let me give you a summary. Folks, I apologize. I raced through this, and I, I, I hope I didn't leave too many of you behind, but I really wanted to get through chapter 1. Next week, we're going to start on Ephesus, and we'll, we're probably only going to do one church a week. I thought about doing more, and I thought there's no way that we're going to do that. So we're probably going to do one church a week. So next week, start with chapter 2, uh, the church of Ephesus. And please don't read it just once. Read it and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. So let's, let's review. Here's the key idea. Jesus is present and working in his church every day. He's in the middle of his church every day. He intercedes for his church every day. He sees and knows everything about his church every day. He purifies and refines his church every day. He speaks to his church every day. He controls and protects his church every day. So what do you conclude? Does he care about you? Is he actively involved in your life? Dramatically involved in your life. It should give us tremendous hope because what you're going to see in the book of Revelation is both going to thrill you and if you read this thing with any kind of insight at all, it will terrify you. If this book doesn't scare you at the same time it excites you, you're not getting the picture. Okay? All right. I love you guys. Because I love you, I told you what God says. That's all we do. It's all written down. And now that you know what he says, and what do we say? Write down one thing. One thing this week you're going to do as a result of what you now know. Just one. Not two, one. All right. I love you.